Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us this week. Yes, thank you. Christy has another episode for us, but before we get into that, we would like to put a call out to all of our listeners. Yeah, we have a favor to ask. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, whatever device you listen on, whatever platform, if you could just hit that little follow button, that would help us out a lot. Even if you're listening all the time, Hitting the follow really makes a difference. Yeah, it boosts us up in that algorithm, which will allow us to keep bringing you these gruesome stories for a long time to come. That's our little shameless plug. Well, we do appreciate you guys, and we do love being able to bring you true crime cases each week. But before you tell us your case, Christy, as a way of saying thank you to our listeners, we want to tell them about the opportunity they're going to have to send us their questions. Have you ever wondered about us or had a nagging question about a case we've covered? Now's your chance to ask. Send your questions to any of the inboxes of our social media accounts, or you can actually email us at buriedmotives at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to join us on the air, send us an audio clip of your question. And if we can play it, we will. We can't wait to hear your questions, so send them in. But do it quickly because we want to be able to air this question and answer episode before the end of the year. Now Christy can tell her case. (laughs) Okay, I'm excited for this one. I actually found the case that I'm bringing you today so interesting. Today we are discussing an English serial killer. But before we start, my question to you is, do you think that children can have an inclination to start killing at a young age? Absolutely. There are several cases that I am in the midst of investigating. And I think we saw with your Mary Bell case... That can totally be the case. Absolutely, it can. The dirtbag today became interested and then obsessed with poison as a child, a fascination that would stay with him until his dying day. Was he a chemist? He was a wannabe chemist. I find this case intriguing mainly because of how young the murderer started and who he first started to poison, but also because it is a case of a man who chose poison as his weapon of choice. That is unusual. It is. We know that poison is more commonly used by female killers. This case takes place in the 1960s and 70s, but according to research completed by the University of Georgia, quote, homicidal poisoning is rare relative to a lot of other causes of death, but the numbers are trending higher. So it is becoming slightly more common than it used to be. Which is interesting because we would have more tests now to detect poison. Right. But also maybe more knowledge about poisonous materials. That is true, too. This study insightfully pointed out that although poisoning isn't the first choice in killing methods for most dirtbags, the actual number of poisonings might be higher than we think because sometimes a poisoning could be misdiagnosed as a natural death, which is an unsettling thought. Well, that's the whole goal of the dirtbag, though, isn't it? Right. And a little fun fact before we start. I realize that this is the very first time I have covered a case that involves poisonings. That's usually me. I know. Melissa has covered a few for us, but it took me 119 episodes for some reason. But like I said, I found this case super interesting, so I hope you all will too. Graham Frederick Young was born on September 7, 1947, in Needston, England, which is a suburban area in northwest London. His parents were Fred and Bessie, although I will say that half of my sources referred to his mother as Margaret, so I'm not sure if Bessie was her nickname. That would make sense. But I think Bessie is usually more for Elizabeth, not necessarily Margaret. But maybe that was her middle name. Could be. Bessie unfortunately developed pleurisy when she was pregnant with Graham. Pleurisy is a condition which the pleura, where the two large thin layers of tissue that separate your lungs from your chest wall, becomes inflamed. This is usually caused by an infection which can be viral or bacterial. When Graham was only three months old, two days before Christmas on December 23rd, his mother died from tuberculosis. I'm not a doctor, but from what I read, the two conditions are most likely related. I don't want to say most definitely, but yeah, that's a good summation. Either way, super tragic. 
So who takes care of the baby now? Because in that time period, that wasn't usually a task that fell on the father. Well, and it doesn't in this case either. Fred was understandably heartbroken at the death of his wife, but this was the end of 1947, when a man would not be expected to care for a newborn without his wife. He worked as a machine setter and did not know how to take care of an infant on his own. Fred and Bessie also had a daughter born eight years before Graham named Winifred. After Bessie's death, Winifred was sent to live with her grandparents, and Graham was sent to live with Fred's sister and her husband, Winnie and Jack. And I just loved that they named their daughter Winifred when his name was Fred and his sister's name was Winnie. I just thought that was really clever. It's super cute. Mm-hmm. Winnie and Jack raised Graham in a loving home until he was almost three, but it was reported that Graham was not an easy baby to care for. He didn't sleep well, and when he got a little older, he would rock back and forth to comfort himself. He also had to have some type of operation on his ears when he was super little. Despite being attached to his caregivers, when Fred remarried in 1950 to a woman named Molly, Fred arranged to have his two children come back and live with him and his new bride. He could take that on now that his children were a couple of years older, and he had a woman in the house to take care of them, I guess. And I put, insert side eye emoji. (laughs) Just because it's so different now. Yeah. (laughs) I think that was fairly common at the time, though. I think there's more understanding now about the impact of stability in a child's life. And so I think often it happened that children got moved around a lot between families as it suited the adults in their lives. Oh, I think you're totally right. And we've learned now that dads are perfectly capable of taking care of their children and good at it. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. The reunited family resided in St. Albans, a beautiful cathedral city in Hertfordshire, England. I know that Fred was likely excited to have his children living under one roof with him again, but it came with a price. Little Graham, just a toddler, went through major separation anxiety being away from Winnie, the woman he would have known as his mother figure he displayed visible signs of distress. It was said that Graham pulled away and became reclusive, not wanting to interact with others, even with other children his age. That would be so hard on somebody so little. I know. I really did feel for him as a child. Not so much as an adult dirtbag, though. Not at all. I am not sure how much this traumatic event had to do with his development. I think it had to have had some effect, but it is going to go from bad to worse regarding Graham very quickly. When Graham started to learn how to read, he loved reading books about real-life murders. Being a true crime fan is less cute when you are knee-high to a grasshopper. Yeah, that's a little bit disturbing, hey? It is. I just thought, can you imagine tucking in your child at night and asking what bedtime story they want, and they ask to be lulled to sleep by you reading them a story about someone like Jack the Ripper? No. (laughs) I find even now that we research a lot of true crime, that all of my entertainment has to be something completely different. Absolutely. I know we talked about that a little bit with the Shea Groves case. And like I said, during that case, I have to consciously pick non-true crime content to also fill my time with. In fact, just last night, I was cooking dinner and I have found, as some of you listeners have maybe heard their promo on our podcast sometimes, But Tales from the Estate is a great podcast, just kind of about nothing, and I love it. It's just a total way to relax and take your mind off of true crime things. Right. I feel like they're kind of like the Seinfeld of podcasts where they're just kind of talking about random things, and it's just a nice way to give my brain a break from all the true crime. So shout out to them. If you're wanting something like that, you should check out Tales from the Estate. They're totally entertaining. They really are. But it's not so entertaining when your toddler or your young child is asking for true crime stories. Yeah, it makes you wonder, when would you start to have your spidey senses up and be like, maybe this is a little bit odd. Right. It's a little concerning that he has this fascination with murder at such a young age. And then you're already telling me that he has a tendency to pull away from social attachments. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of red flags happening in hindsight here. Scary. Interestingly, Graham's favorite story to read was one about an infamous poisoner named Dr. Crippen. Holly Harvey Crippen was a homeopath, ear and eye specialist who also dispensed medicine. He was executed by hanging after he poisoned his wife to death with a substance nicknamed Devil's Breath in 1910. In a fun fact, Crippen was one of the first criminals ever caught with the aid of a wireless telegraphy or radiography. 
Graham was also a big fan of William Palmer, another famous dirtbag coined the Prince of Poisoners. So right from as a younger child, he was drawing towards these stories about poison. Which is so interesting. It's not something that you would expect a little boy to be drawn to because often they're drawn to the violence of things. Yeah, they can be, right? That's usually which way you see it go. Yeah, they want toy guns or a bow and arrow or something like that. Right, especially in the time frame that you're talking about. This yes. is right after World War II. It is. So you think that that would be on the forefront of like, I want to be a soldier. And if he was having a propensity to go after violence or glorify violence, you think that's the way that he would do it. Not with poison. I agree. That's insightful. Barely a teenager, Graham started to study black magic and the occult. He was knowledgeable about local covens and Wiccans. He then tried to convince local kids to join in on occult ceremonies with him. One of these said ceremonies included the sacrifice of a cat. What? Although it was reported that multiple cats went missing around this time, so I assume he held multiple ceremonies. Oh dear. While still in his early teenage years, Graham quickly went from what you could describe as an odd kid to a full-on dirtbag. Graham began looking up to and even defending Adolf Hitler. He read books on Nazi Germany, wore swastikas, and tried to explain how Hitler was just misunderstood. And I wrote, ew, no, Graham. There's no misunderstanding. Graham did exceptionally well in school, but was hyper-focused on forensic science, toxicology, and chemistry. He couldn't get enough of it. To help quench his thirst of learning in these areas, his father, Fred, purchased him a chemistry set, which Graham would spend hours using. And I thought Fred was likely thinking, oh, my boy is so smart, instead of, oh, here's a monster in the making. You could see how parents would be proud, though. Oh, absolutely, they would have been. He was very advanced for his age in his schooling. Oh, dear. As early as age nine, Graham would take Molly's perfumes and nail polish removers to try and analyze them. He also learned about the specific ingredients in different medicines and enjoyed teaching his family about what would happen to them if they took too much. So if someone was like taking a Tylenol, he'd be like, oh, that consists of this, 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 this. And if you take too much of this compound, this is what will happen to your body. Interesting. So he's putting it together all at a very young age. Very young. He became interested in gunpowder as well and would try to make bombs with it, destroying a few things along the way. He was totally a mad scientist who would soon use humans as his lab rats. When Graham was only 13, he used his extensive knowledge to convince local chemists that he was 17. Because of this, he was able to purchase dangerous substances from them for his experiments. He got his hands on antimony, digitalis, arsenic, and then eventually thallium. He signed the poisons registered as M.E. Evans, a fake ID he would use into his adulthood to obtain dangerous materials. But I thought that was remarkable. At 13, he convinced them he was 17 because he knew so much. And you're already seeing some secrecy into his personality. Yes. Before we get into the nitty gritty, I am going to explain very briefly two of these substances that Graham would continuously use to torture and kill people with. The first one is antimony. It is a semi-metal chemical element used frequently in the electronics industry. It can be used in part to make infrared detectors, batteries, bullets, flame-retarded materials, enamel, glass, and pottery. It is not an element easily found in abundance. 88% of it is produced in China. In ancient times, it could be used for medicines and cosmetics, but can easily be used in a lethal manner. The second chemical element that Graham favored was the heavy metal thallium. Trace amounts are found in the Earth's crust. It is tasteless and odorless and difficult to detect, as well as easily absorbed into the body in multiple ways, through air, skin, and ingestion, making it a versatile favorite for murderers. It is used for electronics, optical lenses, and imitation precious jewels. Production of thallium was stopped in the U.S. in 1984, where it was commonly used as rodent killer because of accidental exposure. Unfortunately, at the age of 13, Graham had gotten his hands on both of these deadly substances in large quantities. Oh, so he doesn't even have to keep going back to replenish his supplies? He does eventually. He kind of always has a supply coming in, though. Wow. The inner scientist in Graham wanted to test these poisons out. He made up his own concoctions of these substances and fed them to his fellow science classmate, 
Christopher Williams. They would sometimes swap sandwiches at lunch, and that is how he would get him to eat it. Christopher became extremely ill after ingesting the poisons. He began vomiting and experienced aggressive cramping and headaches. That is so cruel. It really is. I think he probably just had an extra sandwich in case Christopher wanted to trade that day. And it takes him a while to figure out the proper amount. So he's mixing different things together to kind of see what's going to happen. And that's supposedly his friend. Right. His classmate. Christopher was kept at home to recover, and thankfully he did. However, this frustrated Graham because he could not fully observe his test subject after he went home and wasn't coming to school every day. This frustration prompted Graham to carry out his experiments somewhere that he knew he would have continuous access to his victims. His family? Yes, at home. Graham turned his sights towards his own family. Who's he going to target first? His stepmom? You're absolutely right. Good guess. In February of 1961, at the age of 14, Graham first started to slip bits of poison into his stepmother Molly's food or tea. She came down with violent diarrhea, severe stomach pains, and vomiting. These symptoms were written off as bilious, meaning too much bile, if I understood it correctly. Well, that's the thing with poisons is that so often it can look like something completely different. And so doctors are treating the symptoms thinking it's something totally different. It's true. Graham was pretty open about his disdain towards Molly. He would tell kids at school that he hated her and even tried to make a voodoo doll of her to stick pins in. Oh, I wonder if that's what started his fascination with the occult. Maybe. Or because he was fascinated with the occult, he's like, oh, I'll make a voodoo doll. Yeah, it'd be hard to know which one came first. True. On one occasion, Molly discovered that Graham had poisoned a mouse. She reprimanded Graham for doing this. The next day, he drew a picture of her grave and wrote on the tombstone, quote, in hateful memory of Molly Young, R.I.P. And then he left it out so she could find it. No way. Yes. That's cruel. That is. And wouldn't you feel a little bit scared if you were Molly? I would. Here's a kid that's poisoning animals and his classmates. Not that she probably knew about that. But he's that vindictive. To leave a picture purposely out so that she knew he was thinking he wanted her dead? Right. And he's 14. This is not like your four-year-old being like, I hate you. Right. Where you know they don't actually mean it. At 14, and he's drawing that picture, that would be unnerving to me for sure. Later, he would tell psychiatrists that he believed he would have been so much happier in life if his mother had lived and he hadn't been raised by a strict stepmother. So I think he had some displaced resentment towards Molly. Definitely sounds like it. Mm-hmm. Next, Graham's father, Fred, was struck by the same symptoms, followed by his sister, Winifred. This mysterious illness would make them sick for multiple days in a row. I understand why he would target his dad, but why would he target his sister? Nobody is safe around Graham. Oh, okay. It's just his science experiments, quote unquote, take precedence over all else. He's viewing everyone around him as... Test subjects, really. So is it the curiosity that's driving him or is it the want to hurt people? We'll talk about it a little bit as we go along, but I think it might have even been about the power that he felt by doing this. And he was looking up to these great poisoners. I think he was wanting to become like them. Right. By summertime, the young family were consistently becoming ill. Even Graham himself had become sick. I am unsure if this was accidental or if he did it to make himself less suspicious, or if it was even out of curiosity. Classmates of Graham's were also catching this mysterious bug. It could easily be assumed that there must have been some type of nasty flu going around. With all the vomiting and diarrhea that those poisons bring on, it makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like it could be a flu. And because he had accidentally or however he had gotten sick too, it wouldn't put as much suspicion on him either. But I honestly think he was curious. It sounds like he's a curious person. Mm -hmm. In November of 61, Graham made Winifred, his 22-year-old sister, a cup of tea before she had to leave for work. It was said that she only took one sip and then dumped it out because it was so sour. My guess is that Graham had tried a new concoction or had increased the amounts of poison that he put in his sister's tea. Because just an hour later, while on the train to go to work... Winifred began hallucinating and had to be helped off the train and rushed to the hospital, just from that one sip. Doctors concluded that Winifred had somehow ingested Atropa belladonna, 
or deadly nightshade, as it is more commonly known as. This might have been the first time that Fred became suspicious of his son. He asked Graham about it, but he told his dad that he had seen his sister mixing shampoos in the teacups. Fred was not sold on this idea, so he searched his son's room, but did not find anything that raised a red flag for him. So he just cautioned his son to be more careful when, quote, messing around with those bloody chemicals. I am sure that the thought of his son deliberately poisoning their family never crossed his mind, or if it did, he would have immediately dismissed it. Because what parent wouldn't? It's true. What's unnerving is how sneaky he's being. Really is. But I guess a dirtbag has to be sneaky to get away with the things they get away with. Especially something that takes time like poisonings. Mm -hmm. And so I think this was the first time Fred was kind of suspicious, but then probably convinced himself that if it was, it had to have been accidental and just told him, well, be more careful. It would be hard to believe that your own child is doing something like that. Absolutely. Unfortunately, Graham would continue to push the limits regarding how much and what poisons he was infecting people with. For whatever reason, he began focusing his efforts on Molly, his stepmother. On Easter Saturday, April 21st, 1962, 44-year-old Fred came home from the pub to find his 37-year-old wife laying in the backyard, tossing and turning in uncontrollable pain. It was said that Graham was sitting in the kitchen, staring out the window at his stepmother in awe. How eerie would that be? Not even trying to help her, just watching his own handiwork. Yep. She's literally writhing in pain in the yard, and he's just sitting there calmly watching her. He was probably enjoying it. I think he was. He had to have been. Because otherwise you would run to your stepmother's aid. Anybody would. But he had inflicted it and was just watching his handiwork unfold. Molly had been progressively getting sicker. That morning she felt worse, but still went out and did some shopping, and I thought likely for Easter dinner the next day. Oh, that is a slap in the face. She's out there slaving away, trying to put on a good dinner for her family. Yeah. And one of her family members is doing this to her. Exactly. It was said that that day her neck was really stiff and she felt pins and needles in her hands and feet, on top of all the other symptoms. Fred rushed his wife to the hospital, but to no avail. Molly Young passed away in the hospital later that same night. Molly's cause of death was mistakenly recorded as a prolapse of a bone at the top of her spinal column, which was caused by a prior car accident. And that's what was causing the pins and needles and the paralysis? That's what they recorded it as. It would be painful to have that a bone collapse. It would. So she had that on top of being poisoned. I'm assuming that they didn't go into a whole lot of investigation on it after seeing her report, knowing that she had this condition. That's what caused it. Easy peasy. Well, you think horses, not zebras. Right. And who's going to suspect a kid of poisoning? Nobody. That's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Graham suggested to his father that Molly should be cremated, and he agreed. At Molly's funeral, many of the guests came down with a sudden and violent illness. Did they blame it on food poisoning? Yeah, I'm not sure what they blamed it on. But this little creep of a dirtbag was not scared off by killing the mother figure in his life. He saw a room full of test subjects and couldn't contain himself. He later admitted to lacing a jar of mustard pickle with antimony and giving it to his Uncle John. And then pretty soon, a lot of people had tasted it and they were all super sick. It was later learned that after ingesting so much antimony on a continual basis, Molly's body began to develop a tolerance to it. The night before her death, Graham started giving her thallium, which proved to be fatal. He had given her enough to kill at least five people. Apparently, at this point, he had enough poisons altogether to kill 300 people if he wanted to. Wow. So he knew he was going to kill her. Winifred later said about her stepmom, quote, It was as if she was wasting away in front of our eyes. She said she had lost a large amount of weight. She was always in pain, and her hair had started to fall out. What a horrible way to die. Yes. And how much more horrible of a dirtbag do you have to be to sit back and watch that prolonged process? Yeah, that's a special kind of evil right there. After his wife's death, Fred's symptoms began to increase. His son had set his sights on him now. Things got so bad that Fred had to be hospitalized. Doctors were able to figure out that Fred had high levels of antimony in his system. 
They said that if Fred had ingested one more dose of the poison, it would have been fatal. So he hadn't built up a tolerance to it yet. Exactly. So thankfully, he went to the hospital when he did. Fred tried to give his son the benefit of the doubt. But when word got out, Graham's chemistry teacher checked his desk at school and found the incriminating loot of poisons and materials about poisoners. He was keeping it at school? He was. And he also had made drawings of dying men. And those were found as well. There's your violent depictions. Yep. But it was more like withering away men dying of poison. Oh. So he was drawing a timeline? Just drawing what these men would look like as they're dying from poison. Oh, okay. So it wasn't like a scientific log. There's like, and now he's lost this much body weight and this much body weight. No, but a log would come in his future. After making this discovery, the teacher called the police. I read that this teacher and the headmaster had a psychologist pose as a career advisor to interview Graham first. And after realizing how much he knew about poison, they collectively decided to inform the authorities. That's clever. It was, I thought. But can you imagine the realization of the teacher and of Fred that Graham had been quietly poisoning his family and classmates for well over a year? That is a disturbing thought. How did this teenage boy get so much pleasure out of seeing people suffer, even people he loved? And I hope this comes out the right way, and I'm sorry if it doesn't, but I feel like poisoning is almost like a cowardly way to kill someone, meaning you don't get your hands dirty. But at the same time, it's one of the most brutal and sadistic ways to take someone else's life. It's not a split-second decision. You have to be really committed to kill someone when it can take hours, days, or even weeks. I don't know if it would be a cowardly way out because you have to recommit yourself to that goal of killing someone day in and day out and not turn back when you see their suffering. And that's what I mean. It's so sadistic. But I mean, it's cowardly in the way that it's not one-on-one battle. It's not getting up close and personal. His hands are clean. Right. Which just makes him that much more of a little weasel. On May 23rd, 1962, police were waiting for Graham as he arrived home from school. Upon inspecting his person, they found multiple vials of the poisons. Surprisingly, Graham admitted to the poisonings and pleaded guilty to three charges of malicious administration of a noxious thing to inflict grievous bodily harm concerning his father, his sister, and the boy from school. Because his stepmother had been cremated, there was no proof at that time for a murder charge, and he was never officially charged with her murder. But he didn't confess to it, obviously. He didn't. And her death had not been ruled as a homicide. But are they not drawing the conclusions? He's poisoning everybody else, and she died from what looked like poisoning? Like, even after the fact, wouldn't you draw that connection? Well, you think that you would. But he did confess to the other three poisonings. And they're like, okay, that's good enough, I guess. So if he's confessing, then he must have confessed all he did. Right. Because then why wouldn't he confess to Molly? Uh, Because it's a murder charge? Yeah. And he will confess to it just later. Okay. Graham was examined by psychiatrist Christopher Fish, who stated that Graham did not have a mental illness. Rather, he believed that Graham had a psychopathic disorder. He said that Graham did not develop a moral sense and that it was quote-unquote, extremely likely that he would reoffend. He also said that while interviewing Graham, he was told by Graham, quote, I am missing my antimony. I miss the power it gives me. He said, quote, It grew on me like a drug habit, except it was not me who was taking the drugs. So this tells me he was becoming addicted to inflicting pain and suffering. And like you said, that power. Right. Dr. Fish recommended that Graham be sent to the infamous Broadmoor Hospital, a high-security hospital for criminals with mental disorders. We have talked about this hospital before and covered the case of Robert Maudsley, who was deemed their most dangerous prisoner. The judge sentenced Graham to reside in the hospital for a minimum of 15 years unless given the approval of the Home Secretary to be released. Graham, being only 14, was the youngest inmate to enter Broadmoor since 1855, so in 77 years. I always find it so interesting when our cases interconnect. We're seeing prisoners share the same prison and making connections there. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting because Robert Maudsley was deemed their most dangerous and Graham is their youngest prisoner in 77 years. They're breaking records, but not for good reasons. Yeah. While in Broadmoor, 
fellow inmate John Barrage suddenly died of cyanide poisoning. Graham told them that he had extracted cyanide from the laurel bushes on the grounds. The idea was so absurd that the prison officials did not believe him, and John's death was ruled a suicide. No way. Yes. So he's actually claiming responsibility. And they're like, yeah, no, you couldn't do that. Right. The grounds were, I guess, surrounded with laurel bushes. And he's like, I got the cyanide from that. Easy. And they're like, yeah, right. Ha ha ha. They're probably thinking a 14-year-old kid does not know how to take leaves from a bush and make cyanide. But this is a 14-year-old kid that has a poison arsenal. I know. And knows how to trick so many people. Like, when do you look at their background and say, yep, this is actually possible and take them seriously? Yeah, I thought that was incredible. This was not the only suspicious thing pertaining to poisons that happened at Broadmoor while Graham was there. Officials discovered something called sugar soap, which is an abrasive sodium compound used to prepare walls for painting. And that was found inside a tea urn. Had this sugar soap not been discovered, it could have caused a mass poisoning of up to 90 prisoners and staff. A staff member also discovered bleach in their coffee. Things got so ridiculous that staff would joke to the other inmates that if they didn't behave, they would let Graham make their coffee for them. So it's not like they're unaware that he has the ability to do these things. Right. It became the running joke. That's crazy. Yeah. While being locked up when he wasn't trying to poison people, this little dirtbag was reading as much on Nazism as he could. He tried to grow a mustache to match Hitler's and would recite speeches made by him. The writing seemed to be on the wall, but by June of 1970, Graham was said to be cured and was later released from the hospital on February 4th, 1971. So what happened to the other psychology report that said it would be an ongoing issue, that he would never get over it? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, because of this case, it does cause much needed change in how the protocols were happening at this time, because he should not have been released. No, doesn't sound like it. No. He was just getting an education. That's a noteworthy thing, right? In all the wrong subjects. Yeah, no kidding. I think if you're actually joking that if you don't behave, we're going to have Graham make your coffee for you. And then to say, oh, yeah, I know he's safe to go. When you know that he's a threat, everybody there knows. He was going to poison 90 staff and prisoners with that sugar soap. It's so ridiculous that it's humorous. Almost. But we don't really mean that it's not. It's terrifying. But him being released was mostly because of Broadmoor psychiatrist Edgar Udwin. He wrote to Home Security and said that Graham was, quote, no longer obsessed with poisons, violence, and mischief, and he is no longer a danger to others. And a wild fact about this on the flip side, allegedly, Graham told a nurse at the hospital that when he was released, he planned on killing one person for every year that he was hospitalized. She recorded it in his file, but he was still released early. He was only there for under nine years, not the sentenced minimum of 15. Well, they were saving people's lives, don't you know, Christy? (laughs) Inside the Broadmoor Hospital. But now they're releasing him to the public where he's going to wreak havoc. Right. But the less years he was incarcerated, the less he's going to try and kill, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) Interestingly, five years prior to his release, Graham had petitioned to be released then in 1965. But his own father stated that his son should never be released and could not come and stay with any of the family members if he was. So his own father five years before was like, do not let my son out. And they didn't listen. That must have taken a lot as a father to say that. Oh, it would be heartbreaking. But he was doing the right thing. Now a 23-year-old man, Graham was free to continue his demented experiments on those around him. He himself referred to himself as a Frankenstein and made jokes about it. Fred, Graham's father, stayed good on his word and did not have anything to do with his son at first. He had murdered his wife, after all, and had tried to kill him and his daughter as well. However, Winifred, his sister, was more forgiving and began speaking to her little brother. I believe she let him even stay at her house for a few days when he was initially released. Winifred was now married to a man named Dennis and was living in Hemel, Hempstead. It was said that she was concerned for Graham, and she later admitted that it was wishful thinking on her part that her little brother had been cured. It would be so hard to write off a family member. It would. But looking back, maybe they wish they had. Graham got a kick out of visiting his old neighborhood to unnerve his old neighbors. 
but he decided to stay in a hostel near Sippenham while he took a course on storekeeping in Slough. Really, he had nowhere else to go. Graham would go on to poison many and take more lives. I will go through the ones I could find information about, but I am sure there are many that were never recorded or linked to Graham. At the hostel, he met a 34-year-old man named Trevor Sparks. Soon after meeting Graham, Trevor started experiencing symptoms of sickness and pain. Graham was getting enjoyment out of poisoning his new friend. So was there no parole going on at this time? Like nobody was keeping an eye on him? That is part of the reform as well, because there was, but nobody was checking in. Okay. He was just left to his own device. Nice. The two would often go to a pub for a drink or share wine together at the hostel. Graham later said that he would slip antimony sodium tartrate into Trevor's drinks. One time after poisoning him, he gave him some laced wine to try and quote-unquote help him feel better from the poison he had already given him. So he poisons him and then laces the wine with it and was like, here, maybe this wine will help you feel better. Oh, what a turbag. Just so cold. On February 10th, so only six days after leaving Broadmoor, Graham once again slipped drugs into Trevor's drink, this time water. That night, Trevor's legs were full of pins and needles. He had terrible diarrhea. His face swelled. He vomited. And he suffered pain in his testicles. Trevor was passionate about playing football, but had to stop mid-game because of his mysterious illness. He continuously battled these symptoms and was diagnosed with all sorts of issues, except for what it really was, which was poisoning. But like you said, it would be easy to think it's so many other things. Thankfully, Trevor decided to move from the hostel and did eventually recover. But sadly, he never played football again. And that might be soccer if we're talking about England. Yeah. Many of Graham's victims would say that they experienced pain from the poisons for years afterwards, as was the case for Trevor, and that is why he could no longer play. It is believed that Graham also poisoned another man at the hostel to the point of this man taking his own life to escape the excruciating effects of the poisons. Oh, that is awful. It is. Graham would change up what poisons he mixed together to see how they would react with one another but also to shake up the types of side effects that they would have on his quote-unquote patients, as he called them, so foul play wouldn't be suspected. So he wanted different side effects so that it wasn't all the same thing that was happening. Because he'd already been sent to prison before and didn't want to go back. Exactly. He adamantly did not want to go back. So stop poisoning people. Right? That's an easy decision to make. Yeah, it makes sense to you and I. <laughs> you don't want to go to jail? Don't be a dirtbag. Yeah. After finishing his course, Graham got a job, by line on his application, as an assistant storekeeper at John Hadland Laboratories in Bovington, Hertfordshire, not too far away from where his sister lived. He lied about why he hadn't been working before this. He said he had a mental breakdown after his mother died in a car accident, and the reference letter sent over from Broadmoor did not state the reason why he was there, but did state that Graham Young had made a full recovery. He's clever. Yeah. Broadmoor would later say that they didn't want him to be discriminated against because of his mental history in regards to getting employment, so that's why they hadn't put it in the letter. So they put other people at risk because they didn't want him to be discriminated against. Right. So once again, putting the rights of the dirtbag over potential victims. But according to them, he was cured. He was no longer a threat to society. Ironically, the company made infrared glasses for the military and photographic supplies using thallium bromate iodide, one of Graham's favorite poisons. However, they did not store it where he worked, so he had to continue getting it from a chemist in London. Graham moved out of the hostel and rented a room on Maynard Road in Hemel for four pounds a week. And today that's only 36 US dollars and 50 Canadian, so he was getting a deal. He was living it up. Yeah, had extra money to buy all of these poisons. Graham's co-workers later stated that he was a bit weird and kept to himself. He would sit in the break room and read books on war, the Nazis, chemistry, and famous murders. One of Graham's duties at work was to collect drinks from the tea trolley and take them into the storeroom to the other employees. Each worker had their own specific mug, so Graham was able to target specific people. He would slip mixtures of antimony or thallium into their mugs and mix it into their teas. No one suspected Graham, and they blamed the sudden onslaught of illness on a Bovington bug going through the company, a bug that was going through the schools at the time. 
They also thought it could have been the water that was contaminated due to radioactive experiments carried out in a nearby airfield. It sounds like there's a lot of things going on that they can blame it on. Yeah. They were not thinking, oh, this is our new hire. This job of filling everyone's teacups seems way too coincidental to me. My guess is that Graham volunteered for this daily task. Either that or the universe had a sick sense of humor letting this fall into his lap. Either way, he would have been tickled pink in anticipation. We're putting this poisoner in charge of filling everyone's teacups. It's ironic how many times teacups come into his play or coffee cups in prison. The teacup of his sisters. It's true. It's almost like he has a thing for teacups. He is referred to as the teacup poisoner, but he has something to say about it later. Okay. Most of his co-workers survived after suffering the violent side effects of the poisons that they were ingesting, but some co-workers would not be so lucky. Bob Egley was 59 years old. He was a veteran and the storeroom manager, so he was Graham's boss. I am sure many people have joked about poisoning their bosses before, but Graham actually did it. Bob first started feeling ill with the usual symptoms of pains, dizziness, and diarrhea in June of 1971. He decided to take a week off of work to recuperate, and it worked. He returned to work a week later feeling much better. Did he target Bob because he was his boss and he was angry at him, or was Bob just more susceptible to the poison that he was feeding everybody? I'm not sure why he chose Bob, but we do know that power is a play for him. And so maybe because Bob had power over him as his supervisor, maybe that was kind of a reason for him. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure. Whatever the reason, though, Graham was not satisfied with Bob's recovery. And so on his first day back to work, he spiked Bob's afternoon tea with a large dose of thallium. This caused intense back pain and numbness in his fingers and feet. Bob was rushed to St. Albans City Hospital and was admitted into the intensive care unit. Soon he began to experience extreme pain whenever he moved his body, and then paralysis. He suffered for 10 days until he died on July 7th. That sounds so horrible. It really would have been. A postmortem was conducted and Bob's death was blamed on a rare form of polyneuritis called Guillain-Barre syndrome. I believe it is an inflammation that can cause muscle weakness and paralysis brought on by a viral infection. Although I did read one or two reports that said he died of pneumonia, I believe it was the Guillain-Barre syndrome that they had misdiagnosed it as. We know he didn't die of either. He was poisoned. Yes. Graham was such a dirtbag that he called the hospital for continuous updates on Bob's condition, acting all concerned. He's got to fill out his scientific logs, Christy. It's true. And then he even attended Bob's funeral as a representative of their department in the company. He's like, I'll go. That's cruel. It is. I wonder, though, if it was because he needed more scientific evidence. Did it preserve well? Did it react well with the embalming fluids? Possibly. Graham was quoted as saying at the funeral how sad it was that, quote, Bob should come through the terrors of Dunkirk, where he served in World War II, only to fall victim to some strange virus. At your hands, you dirtbag. Exactly. The only thing Bob fell victim to was you, Graham. How evil do you have to be to get such enjoyment out of other people's sufferings? It's just so crazy. But it kind of makes sense because he can't make any human connections himself. So he doesn't understand them. And so he's drawing a logical conclusion from all of that emotion. Yeah, that's a good point. I can almost see him tallying up like, okay, this is what he did in his life. And yeah, now it's sad that this is what got him. That's why people are sad. Like he's trying to logically understand the emotions that he doesn't have the capacity for. Yeah, that could be. Or he was just BSing his way through it. Oh, yeah, totally that too. (laughs) Among others, Graham put his target on two other employees at John Hadland Laboratories, Ron Hewitt and Diana Smart. But thankfully, these two survived. Ron was leaving the company. Graham had actually been hired as his replacement. Graham continuously poisoned his tea with antimony at least 12 times in a three-week span. So he had agreed to stay for the three weeks to train Graham. Doctors thought his gastrointestinal issues and burning in his throat were due to food poisoning or gastric flu. Thankfully, he finished his work and moved on in time to save his life. When he started his new job, his terrible symptoms subsided. What a miracle. Right? How is nobody putting this all together and connecting it back to this one guy? I know. And it totally puts working in a toxic environment in a whole new ballgame. When Bob had died, Graham was given a temporary promotion. 
so he had less time to wreak havoc. So he set his sights mostly on the company receptionist, Diana, because she annoyed him. He gave her smaller daily doses of antimony to make her life miserable. In his diary, he wrote, quote, Di, meaning Diana, irritated me yesterday, so I packed her off home with an attack of sickness. I only gave her something to shake her up. I now regret that I didn't give her a larger dose, capable of laying her up for a few days. This tells me that he was becoming a master of his craft, and his knowledge of mixtures, doses, and their effects was growing. And when I say diary, this is like his yeah. logbook. By fall of that same year, Graham began upping his ante once more, this time targeting two men at work, David Tilson and Jethro Bat. On October 8th, David took a drink of his tea made by Graham, but found it way too sweet and decided not to drink it. Graham had added extra sugar to the tea to try and hide the taste of the mixture that he had spiked it with. So I'm not sure what else he had in there. Since David didn't drink it the first time, the next week Graham again gave David a healthy hit of the poison. David had to go to the hospital due to chest pains, troubled breathing, and leg numbness. It was said that David's skin was hypersensitive, to the point that even having a sheet set on top of his body was painful. Graham laced a bottle of brandy with morthalium and was planning to go visit David at the hospital to finish off the job, but for whatever reason, he was unable to. David survived, but all of his hair fell out and he became permanently impotent. So this poor guy, living his best life one day, and then hairless and impotent the next. And apparently he had been quite the ladies' man prior to this. I wonder if that's what made him a target. Maybe he was jealous of him? Yeah. Could have been. Yeah, because I could see him sitting back and being like, let's see you do your thing now, David. Just such a dirtbag. So cruel. A similar thing happened to 39-year-old Jethro. Jethro would often carpool with Graham, and on two separate occasions, Graham tried to administer a lethal dose to Jethro's drinks. Jethro found the strength of the coffee too much for him, and so he didn't finish it completely either time. Jethro still had to go to the hospital with severe symptoms. Although with Jethro, he began to feel suicidal as well. Thankfully, he recovered, but he too was left impotent with his hair falling out. In his diary, Graham alluded to the fact that he did feel bad about poisoning Jethro. I think this was the closest he had had it to a friend. He wrote, quote, I feel rather ashamed in my action in harming Jay, meaning Jethro. However, he did not feel bad enough to change his vindictive ways. So did he really feel remorse or he was just kind of missing his companionship at work? Yeah, I don't know. But he said he felt ashamed of it. And this was in a book that he didn't think anyone else would ever read. That's interesting because that's not an emotion that I think I would have attributed him to be able to have. Yeah, it's quite the dichotomy. Another employee who would not get off so lucky was Fred Biggs. He was 60 years old and worked for the company only part-time. He was also a counselor. Graham had his fun giving Fred antimony and watching him suffer, until he decided to add three doses of thallium to Fred's tea on October 30th, 1971. The next day was Halloween, and it truly would be a nightmare day for Fred and those who loved him. Fred was experiencing chest pains and could hardly walk. He was transferred between three different hospitals before landing at what is now known as the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. It was called London Hospital for Nervous Diseases at the time. Fred's symptoms were so bad that his central nervous system began shutting down. He had difficulty breathing, could no longer speak, and his skin actually started to fall off of his body. <gasps> oh, It was just peeling away. Just sloughing off? Yes. Oh. Fred suffered for over two weeks longer before passing away on November 19th. He died an excruciating death. Again, Graham continuously called the hospital and Fred's wife for updates on his friend's condition. In his journal, Graham had written about Fred, quote, F, meaning Fred, is responding to treatment. He is being obstinately difficult. If he survives a third week, he will live. I am most annoyed. Okay, that's the kind of emotion I would expect from him. Yes, I think this is the more common emotion that he displayed. Later, another entry about Fred read, quote, F is now seriously ill. He has developed paralysis and blindness. Even if the blindness is reversed, organic brain disease would render him a husk. From my point of view, his death would be a relief. It would remove one more casualty from an already crowded field of battle. What? Yeah, that's what he wrote. It is interesting that he's bringing up those military vibes, though. Mm-hmm. Well, he's obsessed with Hitler. Yeah. After Fred's death, the company became alarmed at what was happening to their employees. 
two were dead, and over 70 had come down with this mysterious illness at some point. Their safety protocols were reviewed, and it was determined that there was no breach of conduct. Nothing could explain what was happening. Yeah, there's an explanation. There was. And Graham's downfall was not being able to keep his pompous mouth shut. (laughs) He brags. Kind of. He wants to appear smarter than everyone, so in front of others, Graham questioned the staff doctor to try and make him feel inadequate. He asked the doctor who was saying that everything seemed up to par if he had ever considered that everyone was being poisoned by thallium, considering it was a heavy metal used in some of their products. Graham continued to run his mouth until the doctor became concerned by how much knowledge he had about this specific poison. The doctor told upper management, who then went to the police. Which is hilarious because that's how he got caught in school too. He was running his mouth off to the psychologist or the career counselor. Right. About how much he knew about poisons. Yeah, he could not help himself when the doctor is like, everything seems fine. He's like, well, have you thought about this? Just wanting to be, I'm so much better than you. And thankfully, it bites him in the butt, or else if he hadn't done this, who knows how long he would have continued to poison people. Could have been endless victims. Oh, totally. On Saturday, November 21st, 1971, at 11.30 in the evening, Graham was visiting his aunt who raised him as a baby and his father in Sheerness, Kent. I guess by now his father was coming around to the idea of seeing his son, but that would not last past this night. Police knocked on the door and immediately arrested Graham. Fred later said that in his gut, he knew who the police were looking for this late at night. So as soon as he knew it was the police, he was like, they're here for my son. He was so upset that he reportedly destroyed any document he had concerning his son, including his birth certificate. An investigation was officially launched, and it was determined that thallium poisoning was the main cause of the mayhem in the company. Authorities learned that the symptoms fit the murder weapon. Severe stomach pains, vomiting, diarrhea, hair loss, Thickening or scaliness of the skin, healing skin, nerve damage, weakness, paralysis, impaired breathing, and even delirium. The drug takes a long period of time to leave the body if they do survive, and if they don't, the victim dies a slow and painful death. Police had to learn all of this because, fun fact, it was the very first ever case recorded of thallium being used as a deliberate poison. No other dirtbag before this had thought of it. After some digging, police discovered the real reason why Graham had been sent to Broadmoor. It wasn't because he was sad over his mother dying. They also found his extensive stash of poisons and the journals he kept where he recorded in detail who he had poisoned, when he poisoned them, exact amounts he administered to them, and the symptoms they displayed afterwards. He referred to his victims as patients. He was totally treating this like a science experiment. Every good scientist keeps a good logbook. You have to. And thankfully, he did too. In Graham's room, police also found drawings that he had made of sickly-looking people holding vials that were marked poison. They also noticed that he had posters of Hitler adorning his walls. When they arrested Graham, they found a vial of thallium in his pocket, enough for a lethal dose. Was it for himself? Yes. Graham said he carried it around as his quote-unquote exit dose, just in case. He expressed that he would rather die than go back to Broadmoor. So what happened? Well, they found it on him before he could take it. News of Graham's actions spread like wildfire. The press nicknamed him the Teacup Poisoner, and he hated it. He felt like the name was degrading for a man with his scientific skills. He felt like he deserved a more grandiose name like the World Poisoner. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's what he said. The World Poisoner? Yeah. Even though he only killed in one place. (laughs) I know. So, of course, I am totally naming this episode the Teacup Poisoner, because you don't deserve anything more grandiose than that, Graham. (laughs) I just love it because this hit the news, and he hated it. It was a blow to his ego. Good. And I think, too, even that just speaks to, like, how demented his thinking was. Like, I'm this grand chemist. I'm this scientist. I'm doing good. He actually could have done some good with all of his knowledge. That's true. He totally could have. What a waste. Nobel Peace Prize teacup killer. Good choice. (laughs) Oh, such a dirtbag choice. It really is. Graham's trial began on June 19th the following year, 1972, at St. Albans Crown Court. It lasted only 10 days. Despite later confessing to his crimes, Graham pleaded not guilty, like the little coward he was. But this was honestly a slam dunk case. 
When confronted with his research diary, he said it was stuff he had written in preparation to write a novel. <laughs> but it went How ex- I got away with murder. Right? <laughs> that doesn't work when it's actually lining up with real life events, Graham. The prosecution had heaps of evidence, including reports of thallium found in Fred Biggs' intestines, kidneys, muscles, bones, and brain tissue. Bob Egley had been cremated, but because thallium is a heavy metal, it does not break down in extreme heat. There was 9 milligrams of thallium found in his ashes. My guess is that they would have been able to find thallium in Molly's ashes as well if tested. On June 29th, Graham was found guilty after the jury deliberated for only an hour and 38 minutes. He was found guilty of two counts of murder for the deaths of Bob Egley and Fred Biggs, and two counts of attempted murder for David Tilson and Jethro Batt. For these crimes, he was given four life sentences. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. He was also given two five-year sentences for administering poison with intent to injure Diana Smart and Ronald Hewitt. But he was acquitted of four charges of administering poison with an intent to cause grievous bodily harm and was found not guilty of poisoning Trevor Sparks and Peter Buck. Oh, that's surprising. It was surprising to me, too. Was that because their names weren't in his little diary? That I'm not sure. Because of this case... Laws were changed to regulate sales and possession of poisonous materials with the creation of the 1972 Poisons Act. Broadmoor Hospital was also highly scrutinized and chastised for releasing Graham and declaring him cured. Fred was right. His son shouldn't have ever been released out of custody. Thankfully, laws were widely reformed in this regard as well because of Graham's case. Some of these changes included having more than one psychiatrist sign off on a release of a patient and stricter protocols on supervising released patients. As I said, Graham was supposed to have follow-up care, but it was never enforced from what I could tell. Graham confessed to murdering Molly, his stepmother, after he was incarcerated. Had he been convicted of her murder in the first place, perhaps all his other victims could have been spared. Justice Gerald Sparrow tried to defend Broadmoor and the Home Secretary when he published this statement. Quote, I think that everyone from the Home Secretary and his advisors to the Hadlands Director, the staff at the training center, and the Broadmoor doctors were taken for a ride by a psychopath of exceptional cunning and address, capable of ingratiating himself with the able, experienced and compassionate men who were deceived by cleverly contrived symptoms of sanity and a balanced, moderate approach which Graham Young could invoke at will. So basically saying he was just so cunning. He could fake it. Right. Graham asked that he go to a conventional prison rather than back to Broadmoor, and the judge allowed it. No way. I know. I did not like that. No, send him where he doesn't want to go. Exactly. And Broadmoor is the mental hospital? That sounds like where he needs to go. I agree. Graham must have been shocked at his conviction because it was said that he was confident he would be acquitted of all charges. He said there was no way to prove that he was the only one who had access to these deadly substances. Graham spent most of his time incarcerated at the HM Prison Parkhurst. He was able to make a few friends, but most of the other prisoners were rightfully just afraid of him. If anyone saw Graham near the communal tea urn, it would be promptly dumped and washed out thoroughly. (laughs) I wouldn't chance it, would you? No. (laughs) I'd be like, Graham was over there, hurry, dump everything. (laughs) Nobody use a teacup ever. (laughs) No, just pour it in my hand, please. (laughs) Graham did, however, make one good friend who was an even bigger dirtbag than he was while in prison. The low-life Ian Brady. <gasps> no! Yes! One of the Moore's murderers. The two bonded over Nazism and would spend time playing chess with one another. It was said that Ian had a crush on the young 24-year-old Graham, but it was not reciprocated. It is always fascinating how dirtbags just kind of attract each other. That thought crossed my mind, too, that most of the people in the prison were afraid of him, but it took someone as evil as Ian Brady to be like, Yeah, buddy, come here. Let's play some chess. I'm not scared of you. Because he's like him. Right. Or that Graham is willing to hang out with Ian Brady because he did awful, awful things. He did. We've not covered that case yet, but maybe in the future. On August 1st, 1990, Graham died in his cell at Parkhurst of a myocardial infarction, meaning a heart attack, just shy of his 43rd birthday. Rumor has it that he was poisoned or murdered by other inmates or even staff who felt unsafe around him, or that he might have committed suicide because his heart was fit as a fiddle before this. So that's just rumor. They have his cause of death listed as a heart attack, but it's highly suspected that he was actually poisoned. 
I wonder how many people would consider that poetic justice. I think a lot of people would. A very few quick aftermath items before we end. Court reporter Susan Nowak said that Graham, quote, was clearly a very intelligent fellow, but he also came across as incredibly creepy. You didn't want to make eye contact with him because he just had this unnerving aura about him. And I believe it. Because it doesn't sound like he followed predictable social norms. He did not. The picture I will post of him is unnerving, and apparently it happened by accident. Graham was taking a photo for the media to use of him in a photo booth, and he thought the machine had robbed him of his money and was not going to take a picture. As he scowled, the machine caught his inner ugliness on camera to be immortalized as a representation of him. But honestly, when you look at it, he has such a scowl on his face, it's scary. He looks mean. That's eerie. You're seeing like the real him, not posing. Right. We don't often talk about copycat murders that happen after the dirtbag we discussed is locked up or dead, but there were some copycats for this case. In November of 2005, a 16-year-old girl was arrested for poisoning her mother with thallium. She said she was fascinated by Graham's work after watching a movie about him. She created an online blog to record dosages and side effects just like Graham had in his diaries. Again, as Bailey Sarian always says, get better idols. <laughs> the movie that this girl watched was made in 1995 and was titled The Young Poisoner's Handbook. There have been other TV shows, artwork, and books created regarding this case as well, including a book written by Winifred Young. In a bizarre twist, Graham said he wanted a wax sculpture of himself displayed at Madame Tussaud's Chamber of Horrors, and he got his wish. His sculpture stands next to two of his boyhood heroes, famous poisoners Holly Harvey Crippens and John Hay. Hitler is also recreated in this museum. I looked at a few pictures, and the artwork is terrifyingly realistic. I believe this museum is in London. If any of our listeners have been here and have seen this sculpture, please let us know. In the photo I found of his sculpture, it appears like it is the same scowly face as his photo. When Graham was asked if he felt remorse for what he did, for all the pain he inflicted on others, he coldly said, quote, No, that would be hypocritical. What I feel is the emptiness of my soul. When recalling his sister's urgings to make friends, he remembered saying to her no. He said about it, quote, Nothing like that can help. You see, there's a terrible coldness inside of me. So he was aware of it. He was. And that is the story of a heartless sadist who is obsessed with power, the incredibly dangerous mouse of a monster, the sinister dirtbag Graham Young. He was awful. He really was. But I could not stop researching this case. It was so fascinating to me. His whole story starting as a kid. And that's why we love to dig deep on these cases. Yeah, we can be fascinated and horrified all at the same time. But what we're not horrified about is if you follow us after listening to this episode, we'd really appreciate it. And we would also appreciate if you join us again next week when Melissa brings us another case. Until then, see ya. Bye. Today is a disaster. Because <laughs> I'm having a muscle spasm. <laughs> and technology is not our friend today. No, it is not. A pause while I read the headlines, Christy. The headlines? What headlines are you reading? <laughs> the news headlines. Melissa, right now, I'm all the news you need, baby. You <laughs> okay. just gotta listen to me. <laughs> what are we even doing today, Melissa? The universe is like, no. Get a little weirdo. No, I'm just kidding. I'm so weird. If it's not one of us, it's the other. And then there's the time that it's the both. Like, what the heck? It always seems to be both, Christy, these days. Lately. Or deadly nightshade at his, as it, or deadly nightshade at it is, oh. as it is. Yep. Howard Winifred. Oh, Howard. Howard Winifred. However, it's supposed to be. <laughs> Look at Howard. Like, Who is Howard Winifred? <laughs> However, <laughs> Hempstead, yeah, and was living in Hemel Hempstead, and was living in Hemel Hempstead, not Hump, <laughs> Hemel Hempstead, Stud, Hemel Hempstead, where was she living, Melissa? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> in Hemel, in Hemel, 
Hempstead. In Hamel Humps, Hempstead. At the hostel, he met a 30 for... I can't even speak today. What's my problem? 34? 34-year-old. 34-year-old. In Hemel, Hemel Hempstead. In Hemel Hempstead. On Mainyard Road in Hemel... In Hemel Hempstead. Where his sister lived? <laughs> Including reports of thallium found in Bread Biggs... Bread... Bread Biggs? Fred Biggs! <laughs> Bread Biggs. <laughs> I snorted. Oh. Let's try this again. I'm close now to the end. I never did I think I would say diarrhea so much in one episode. But I'd say it a lot. Why am I struggling so much today? Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.